So before I share stray thoughts about the Dharma and other matters, I thought that this might be a nice night to check in a little bit to a few things I had on my mind. One, how the 100-day practice period is going. I know all of you are participating. (laughs) Seamless flow of mindfulness, unbroken. Uh, But really, any question that you have about your practice, anything you notice in your practice, anything about the teachings, anything that feels alive, not too excessively theoretical, uh, something that Um, Yeah, feels alive. So are there any questions? You had your hand up? Thank you. um, Can you hear this? Yes, beautifully. Uh, There are a couple um, strands to this question. I'm going to try to make it as brief as possible. But um, one of the things I do is is very um, long walking meditations. In other words, long walks in which I'm staying embodied or I'm doing metta meditation practice. But I saw this TED Talk recently. You saw? A TED Talk recently where they were talking about um, the creativity of boredom. And um, the person who did this talk was talking about um, how when she first had a baby, she would go on, you know, the baby was colicky, so she'd take it on these long walks and they'd go like 15 miles. And she said that through her, through her um, research in, into neuroscience, she learned that boredom was a very creative, she'd get very bored, and she, and she said that boredom was a very creative state actually for the, for the brain because according to her, you get into planning mode and you start thinking up new ideas for the future, etc. But that seems to be the opposite of what we're doing in meditation. We're not supposed to be in planning mode. In fact, when we see ourselves planning, we're supposed to say planning and come back to the present. Well, if you notice that you're planning, you are already back in the present. The problem is not with planning, it's that we become lost in our plans and we lose contact with the real source of well-being, which is the, the present moment. But planning is part of the present moment. And so part of, part of staying present is actually creating the conditions where all of our creativity can flow, but it flows accompanied with this, with this curious awareness. So you actually notice your mind planning. And not only is your mind fertile for planning, but it also is fertile for understanding the Dharma, how creativity emerges and how planning plans. There's no one who's planning. Planning happens. And you can, you can, see, you can understand the Dharma just noticing the planning mind. So, it, so I, maybe you didn't mean it the way you said it, but the point isn't to, to leave the planning, come back to the pleasant, to present, but to notice the planning mind is a changing condition. And, we, and, and it is true that the practice of mindfulness and the training of mindfulness is not to intentionally extend the plans. Okay, so it's not like deliberately planning in, but rather letting... Planning mind will become, as for everyone, we will all be visited unbidden by the top ten tunes. Okay. And for most of us, especially us Westerners who are obsessed by what's next, we, our number one tune is the planning mind. Second, number two tune, judging mind, comparing mind, rehearsing mind, remembering mind, um, evaluating, uh, obsessing, <laughs> uh, 
Of course, that can accompany, that could be mixed with all kinds of mental formations. But, but I think that there's, this is, we're doing something a little bit different here. We also, in this practice, we also value boredom. But we value boredom as a state to understand, as a state to experience, so that we're not driven by boredom. So by encouraging the boredom that causes more planning, it, it, you can easily be just caught up in, in planning, caught up in, in, uh, in seeing what I can do about my future. And that's the obsession with uh, identity. The identity always wants to do something about the future. So with, with our practice, boredom actually brings you into the vital present and sees that the, what you're really longing for more than figuring out how to plan your life out better, what you're really longing for is peace. That's what you hope to have at the end of that rainbow when you've kind of succeeded in, in planning things out and working things out. At the, at the end, you want to say, ah. And so this practice says, find ah right now, even when you're feeling bored. It's the Dharma of non-postponement. But anyway, thanks for asking the question. Hello, is this? Yes, this is on. Hello. So I am having a lot of challenges around anger. Um, and I don't notice it that much during my sitting. It's in the rest of my life. And, and, I mean, anger has been a challenge for me for my whole life. Um, but it's particularly... And when it, you say now. it's a challenge just because you feel it? Uh, yeah. And, or I is it because it you act it out? Because I act it out. You act it out. Okay. And, you know, I guess I just am looking for some reminders and wisdom about... Stop acting it, it out. <laughs> <laughs> You know, the great, the, the first, that's such a great topic, and, and there's such a taboo about feeling angry. And maybe especially for, for, and this gets me into trouble, but certain, I think it's a little bit less taboo for men to feel anger. To act it out. So there, I think there is a, so I think the first and most important thing is that you, is that you name it, I'm pissed off or I'm angry, I feel anger. Of course, you want to move as, as, as you're able to beyond the I'm anger to angers arising, to really feel this is anger, anger is like this, and, and to really take it in. And to, because the, you, as you know, the objects of anger are endless, that are, that any number of things can trigger that reaction and the mind's strongest habit is to project that feeling onto an object and to attribute our anger to what the other person or what's happening and it really often just feeds the identity of being right it feeds the attachment to views and opinions and it just reinforces identity so what tends to cut through that is is to the extent we're able to and learn how to uh, how to work with it is to 
is to withdraw the projections and feel anger. We joke a lot at, in teaching of saying, be the first one to die of anger. Like, you know, take me, let me feel it. And I'm, answer, I'm speaking to, to everyone here that if we really could feel the intensity of our, our anger, the anger that's arising, it would, it would, um, it would shock us how un- incredibly unpleasant it is. And we would want to do everything that we can not to condition that habit of being angry. And the pain of it, I'll just speak for myself, when I've really let myself take in the pain of it, the burning of it, the rumbling of it, it's, it can have the effect of turning into self-compassion for how uncomfortable it is. If, if it's acted out over and over, you, don't, you just don't get that benefit. Noticing the moment between feeling it and responding, because for me, it is, it's so fast. Yeah. I yeah. just, I really have been trying to work on it's, stopping. Yeah, well, when it's so fast starts. that it's acted out before you know it, then all you can do is recognize that, that your, the interrupting power of mindfulness was not as strong as the habit of acting out the anger. And that's a, that's hopefully a cause of some forgiveness. And then forgiveness is then the, the segue into loving-kindness practice or compassion for, for uh, all the mess that gets made with that, uh, both for yourself and for the... So it, you can turn it into, into loving-kindness. As a general antidote, the number one antidote is to have loving-kindness going through your mind all the time. To just be, it's like thought replacement. It's like inclination replacement. Instead of what happens very innocently, inclining over and over again toward ill will and toward, toward being right and all of that, you just incline toward goodwill. I actually missed, I was talking to somebody who who has just a, a terrible time with her family. Any of you ever have trouble with your family? <laughs> and somehow or other, she keeps experiencing herself as being unseen and dissed and judged and you know, minimized by her family. Any of you ever have that one? And she just, you know, she just gets furious or gets completely deflated. Gets, gets, and usually anger, that's the other thing we can reflect on. The Buddha talked about the two reasons we get angry are one is frustrated desire. Some desire that's not, so it has something to do with craving in our mind. The second, which is often tied into the craving in our mind, is wounded pride. We develop so much identity around what we want. So it's just a good thing to check in. Frustrated desire, wounded pride. Because rather than feel that sense of deflation or rather than feel that sense of hurt, 
what we do is we go right into defensive mode and, and go into attack and blame and attribute our vulnerability to some, what somebody else did or didn't do. That even makes us more insecure, more vulnerable. So ideally, we want to attend to our vulnerability and tend to ourselves with loving kindness. But meanwhile, the family's not going to change. And there's some belief in the anger, in the anger, in the mind that's angry that our, that our, um, our anger and making that and attributing our anger to that person will somehow, some magically get them to, to shape up and conform to our image of our, our ideal of how they're supposed to be. And it doesn't work. It just keeps creating that sense of diminishment. On the other hand, if that same person that is not conforming, if you just led with loving kindness or and lead with loving kindness to everybody that you meet, if you made that your primary practice, you could say, you might find that that gives this sense of gladness, this sense of strength. You're less inclined to, to uh, automatically react with anger and it creates a field of a kind of fragrance of goodwill and it really is an antidote to the to the ill will especially for those of us who can habitually and very easily get angry any you relate to any of that please wait we need the uh, if you don't mind using the microphone that would really be helpful I think uh, one of the reasons why I particularly like Pasana Yoga is the um, attachment, I mean, is the um, tying to the sense of your body, the, the sense of your body, like what your body of, is feeling right now. Yes. Um, and so in certain work that I did with a therapist, not necessarily around anger, but that was part of it, um, was that she worked with, I couldn't, I couldn't stop the inter- the reaction Quickly enough, it really took me a long time to um, to work out how to get ahead of my brain, and I did that through um, my body. Like my body would send me signals that I was angry before my before I could act it yes, out. Yes, and so, yes, yes. And being able to tie myself, like I would feel it in my my jaw, and I would feel it in my shoulder. Great. So. Like that was paying attention to my body was the way that I could slow the process yes, down. Yes. So I don't know if anybody no, else. No, that's is. beautiful, and that's what I meant by feeling the anger. We're great at thinking right. about what we're angry. We're not so great at feeling it. And so, by the faster that you can have the habit of putting your mind in your body, the and somehow, um, somehow, the body was quicker. I was able to recognize those signals quicker in a physical form than I was in an intellectual one. Yeah, and that's... Like, like I'd be able to build up that muscle memory of like, oh, here we go. Like, I can feel my shoulders, I can feel my jaw, like, get yourself ready. And then I could... Yes, great. Yeah, so attuning the the body shows things faster than the cognitive. question about uh, effort. Ethos? Uh, about effort. 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 
sorry, Australian accent. Um, <laughs> the just, acoustics are really funky in here. I'll try to speak up a bit. Um, I wanted to ask about uh, kind of where the line is between like in sort of trying to bring mindfulness into life and in the practice, where the line is between um, like applying myself and getting so caught up in trying to like do everything right that I somehow like miss the point. Does that make sense? This question yes. is sort of like how much... There's wise effort and there's unwise effort. And, and the only way that we tend to know what wise effort is or the appropriate application or, or volition is the only way we tend to realize that is through unwise effort. And so if you... Rec no, you can't rely on any external authority for that to, to figure out whether you're, you're over-efforting or getting too much caught in doing and, and not being. You can only discover that through, through the uh, general inclination to apply effort, the willingness to show up. And then you just get to see what your mind is doing. And, and the intelligence of awareness will show you if it's excessive. You'll start to feel tight. You'll start to feel like practice is grim or that it feels more dutiful than, than joyful. And, and that, that insight is, becomes the cause and condition to ease up a little bit, enjoy it a little more. And, and I think it's great that you're naming that because you may have seen a certain tendency of mind. And that's good news when you see that. I think I've quoted a lot lately the words of Francois Fenelon where he says, you only know your malady when the cure begins. So you, so you actually, it's through seeing that 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 becomes your guru. Uh, and then anything I say is mostly reminding you that you, you have within you that capacity to know what's, what's too much. Now, often the excessive effort get, is bound up in the motivation for our practice. So that's why it's really important to know why you're practicing. And if it's to become a better person or if, be, if, it's, if it's driven by a, a sense of insufficiency, or unworthiness, or then you're likely to, it, it, it's likely to create attention because it's all bound up in identity. But if it's just the movement of the heart toward what's a wise way to live, what's a loving way to live for the benefit of all beings, then it often doesn't have that kind of tense over-efforting quality to it. So you, you might look at the at the engine that drives your practice in general. And often the tight practice is that is some kind of view about yourself of, of not being enough. But I don't know that. I don't know you well enough to be able to say that, but you wouldn't be the first one. I think that's a chronic, that's a systemic issue that we have, a sense of unworthiness of some sort. I guess that's a, a good time to segue into... Oh, did you have a... Did you have your hand up, Kevin? Please. Thank you. Um, Get, put it closer. I just want to add, so. add something about anger and 
how I eventually found a solution. And it was like I was running from the pain of whatever situation was. And I just would run faster and faster, and it would just pursue me until one time I just figured there's nothing I can do. I turned around, metaphorically, and faced it and said, okay, here I am. Come and get me. <laughs> and it just was like, it just sort of like blew past. But it, it was hard enough that it actually brought down part of my nervous system. And I had to lay down for a while. And you're talking about anger, feeling anger, turning toward anger? The, the, it, was, it was beyond the anger. Was, uh, I would ask, okay, what's the pain behind What's the it? pain? And the pain was the biggest thing I was running from. Yes. All different avenues, all different substances. Uh, turning toward the pain. And, and, it's it's just, and just turning toward it. And, I, and it was terrifying, but I, I figured, okay, if it kills me, good. <laughs> it was that bad. Oh. Really. And, um, but I, I've, got this thing where I've developed this where when something starts spitting in my brain, I go, okay, what's the pain behind it? Oh, beautiful. And then, all right, square off with it. See, he's saying something very important right now. Yeah. And what was, the thing was after a while I was doing that so much, that it's a shorter and shorter time that the pain would like wash over me. Yes. And it's almost to the point of like, I would get up in the morning and the first thing when I open my eyelids, I'd say, all right, I'm here and I know you are. <laughs> Come on. And it got shorter and shorter where I'd feel the pain and it would go away. This is and I would say, come back here. And it's, it's was amazing was, was how short of a time. Because yes. I thought the first time, I thought, this is just going to tear me to pieces. And I'm toast, and it's over. But it, it actually passes faster and faster. Beautiful. That's the power of power of turning toward whatever it is. And, and you and said, the, face up to it. That's really a key. It's mindfulness is not just knowing something's hanging around. It's, it's the way they talk about it in the teachings as three qualities, face-to-face, non-superficial, and sustained. You stay with it and you see that it's a changing condition, whatever it is. And that pain is not monolithic. It's, it's, just a, it's almost like a dream. It's... it's yeah. But before, it was just had so much incredible power yes. until I just was yes. into this facing off thing. Yes. And um, Thank you. Life has gotten enormously better for me. Great. So happy to hear that. Sadhu. <laughs> just brought Rumi in my mind as you were speaking. You know, one of his 
wonderful central poems where he says, the cure for pain is in the pain. Good and bad are mixed. He says, if you don't have both, you're not one of us. So just turn toward it. He didn't say that. (laughs) So in the last minutes, I just hearing what everyone had to say, anger, working with anger, working with the pain body, working with effort, wise effort. Uh, I I guess the way I would tie it into something I was thinking about today is is getting back to the motivation for practice. And to me, let me back up to last week. I talked about affinity groups. And I talked about the importance of there being affinity groups. People who Uh, people being mirrored, people who are like you, people who have a shared shared frame of reference, a shared pain, a shared shared history, etc. And it's really important in a world where there has been so much marginalization and so much injustice, it's really important that there be affinity groups. There's also a, and that's a very positive thing as people can... uh, can then embrace their, their unique uh, group consciousness or individuality as it relates to that group. And uh, if you just think you have to be you know, homogenized and uh, fit the dominant paradigm or the dominant culture or whatever, it's, it's a, you mostly feel invisible, unseen. And so it's so important. And then I went on to speak about how how a Dharma community is a, another kind of affinity group where it's equally important that you, are, uh, that you keep the company of those who, who mirror back to you the values that you have about, uh, about being awake, about being non-harming, about spreading goodwill as opposed to ill will. Uh, people who can be a reminder to you that it is really possible in this very life to, uh, to transform your uh, habitual uh, mind into uh, something that is, uh, that is of benefit. That whatever the quality, I'm just, and I'm launching from here, whatever the quality of your being is, that whatever you do to train your heart and mind, uh, in non-harming, in, in stillness, in, uh, in emptiness and being open, not being defined, not always living in an identity. So this is where our affinity is not so much for being in a special group where we then form a group identity and say, you know, here we are together and we're special we form a group identity in order to recognize that part of us that is universally human, that is not defined by any particular um, view, not defined by our own family of origin, not defined by our class, our race, our gender, our orientation, 
but we, are, we actually learn to recognize that, that in us which is completely unconditioned and free. And that awakening, really that the Buddha was not a Buddhist, couldn't even say he was a man, couldn't say what, he didn't say what caste he was from, he didn't identify with the prince side of him, he finally said, I'm awake. And of course, he spent the next 45 years describing what, what that actually means to be awake. And what, that, what it means to be awake is to, is to be, for others, a stable refuge. A refuge of safety and peace. Of fearlessness. In other words, the in this meaning of fearlessness, a, a place of refuge and safety where no one has to be afraid of you. Where you, your very life, your very presence gives off the, the scent of safety. And that, 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 your, that your capacity is to be free of, of the dependency on the measuring mind, on identity, on comparing. Where you actually sit in a place that knows the comparing mind is the comparing mind, but you, you know that you're not comparable. And so you're not, you don't quarrel with somebody that thinks they're better. You don't, you more relate to that. You have the capacity to relate to people's comparing minds, their, comp, their competitive nature, rather than with, with triggering your own competitiveness. You can relate to that with compassion for knowing the, the insecurity that drives that kind of comparing and the insecurity that increases in depending on that kind of comparing. This is possible in this very life. That's all, I think, that this affinity group is about. It's, it's all about turning our lives, to the extent that you are willing, turning our lives toward being an agent of love, of non-harming, of wisdom, of skillfulness. And having that be the hub around which you do everything, the most important, at least on the surface, the most important identi identity you have, but mostly in the service of stepping beyond identity so that all the, the most wholesome qualities that are blocked by identity, all the most wholesome qualities can just shine. All we can offer to this world is the quality of our being and the quality of our understanding. If our understanding is limited to our views and opinions, our likes and our dislikes, our, um, our being right, because really, even though I'm a political lefty, I'll just say it right now, that's where I incline. But as soon as I just, if I reinforce being right, I'm just caught up in views and opinions and I've got and it's just more self and then there's more other. And then I'm back I'm just I've fallen to the the 
regular common denominator is us versus them. I'm right, you're wrong. And then I build the monument to my rightness. And unfortunately, once I build that house of self, that's what my next day long is about. Once I build that house of self, I'm crazed by how crazy the other side is. <laughs> and, and I have certainly fallen into that incarnation again and again and again and again. But I'm, much, I'm committed to being able to be a Buddha, which is awake, noticing the Dharma of the, the fundamental insecurity of my views and opinions and how they just make me miserable. And so, so many people are asking right now, how do you tolerate this during this time? And so many people in their conversations when we lead with, oh, what a terrible time it is, what a terrible time. I think that some of that is the, the identity view that we land in and get caught in our views and opinions. And if we could lead with loving kindness, could lead with, with seeing it all as, you know, care, of course, but... but See it all with the eyes of wisdom. With, you know, although I wish things were otherwise, this is how they are right now. And may everybody be free of suffering. May I be free of suffering. And just start inclining toward that which will, will actually create a fragrance of well-being in this, in, uh, for myself and for the people who have to be with me every day. Um, And it's okay, even if, you're, if you are committed to awakening, it's okay to be a work in progress. <laughs> you don't have to become the awakened one. Just awaken. Through, let everything awaken you. Let your unwise effort awaken you. Let your anger awaken you. Let it all be turned into love and be turned in, and use the the affinity group to remind you, yeah, you can put that anger to good use. That can actually be your, your Dharma doorway to loving kindness, to self-compassion, uh, to the commitment to non-harming. I think that's about it. For May we all awaken. May we all awaken together. May we all not be too identified with being awake. <laughs> may we be free and may our practice today and every day be dedicated to the welfare and benefit of all beings who don't really exist apart from us. And we know that when we're not busy being um, Buddhists, when we're just awake. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.